This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Recording on Thursday, March 9th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. Our agenda this week is busy. I wasn't expecting this. I put in some stuff. You put in some stuff. There's a lot going on. I don't know why we'll take it. Um, March, Early March is typically not one of the the busiest times in the year, but here we are anyway. Uh, how are you, Rebecca? I'm great. I'm good. I'm feeling that, you know, waking up for springtime sort of thing. And I feel like that's what is maybe happening in our agenda. Like there's not mm. a major big story, but things are moving. We're into the year. Stuff is happening. Yeah. Uh, th- things that are happening. Um, Book Riot has a new newsletter called The Deep Dive. Um, it's on Substack, and it's one of these, you know, you've heard of these now. Substack is like the Xerox of this stuff. It's a, a freemium newsletter. These are longer form pieces, and you're going to see on the side or in our other free newsletters, uh, where our full-time staff are getting a chance to spread their wings, stretch their legs, stretch their wings, and no, I'm not going to finish that <laughs> inversion, um, and go oh, in Jeff. depth on some, on, some, on some topics. Rebecca wrote about reading goals. Uh, you heard me talk about, I wrote about why the Colleen Hoover phenomenon is the strangest bookish phenomenon of my reading life. Uh, Sharif wrote about gardening. I saw some of the other stuff, reading and gardening. Uh, Sharif also wrote, wrote about um, reading as your love language in a most recent episode. Go check it out. Uh, there's a link in the show notes called The Deep Dive. Some of it's free. You can do a free subscription, get some of it. And if you want to kick in a few bucks, you can get uh, everything that goes on there. Another follow-up. Uh, PRH has followed the, comp- the, the the industry line of getting to this 48,000 threshold for full-time employees. Uh, <laughs> and that seems like the new kind of, that's where we are. Hard to call it a revolution. Hard to say that getting a 6% uh, increase in base salary in an 8% inflationary environment is much <laughs> of a win for anyone. I guess it's better than not getting it. Mm-hmm. So... There we go. Until the next time, I, I bet the whole entry-level industry in publishing, especially the big five, has the HarperCollins Union to thank for all this. Yeah. Um, and that's I don't think that's hyperbole, Rebecca, do you? No. No, I don't think this conversation starts moving and lighting fires under decision makers about what baseline salaries should be, if not for that HarperCollins strike. Yeah. So uh, that's just kind of checking that box. Uh Everything else we might want to spend a little bit longer on. So let's do our first sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. 
So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic focused. And it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to WW Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, and then we'll come back. So you don't do this very often, but you're just like, <laughs> I need to talk about something that's good. And I haven't watched this. I guess it's having a bit of a moment. I got some pitches for interviews we don't do about related to Daisy <laughs> Jones and the Six. So just I'll kind of weirdly, people with... Um, Let's let's say tenuous connections to the book, saying I can talk about Daisy Jones and the Six. So, and I think that relates to what you're going to say, which is which is what. It's just really good. I mm. you know was excited to check it out. We'd been kind of keeping an eye on the production and who was being cast and all of the stuff around the Daisy Jones and the Six adaptation, which is out now on Amazon. If you're just catching up. And I sat down over the weekend. I thought I knew it was coming out on a weekly release. So I thought I was just going to get the first episode and it, I hadn't, you know, checked IMDb. They released the first three, which was really smart because they got me for three hours in a row. It's fantastic. It's like exactly what I wanted from the Daisy Jones and the Six adaptation. They take the oral history setup of the book, which functioned beautifully on the audiobook version and use it as a device that's fundamentally like a documentary that feels a lot like a VH1 behind the music kind of situation. And you bounce back and forth between those pieces of footage that are shot to look like they're in the 90s and then the story of what was happening when the band formed in the 70s. And Daisy Jones doesn't Mm -hmm. meet Billy Dunn and the, the other members of the six until the third episode. So you get the first two establishing who these people and what their worlds are and the vibe. And then there's like the, the tension of, are they going to come together? And oh, wow, gotcha. look at the magic of this creative relationship. Um, I had read a few reviews going into it that were, I guess, a little lukewarm, a little like the show can tend towards melodrama or like it leans into the sex, drugs and rock and roll of it all. And Mm -hmm. I came away like, yeah, but that's the point. (laughs) Like that's the point of the book. And that is also the point of the show. It's, it is a soap opera. Um, Fleetwood Mac in real life was 
pretty much a soap opera and it doesn't come across as like cheesy soap opera ish but they're playing up those elements because those are the big elements of the story and those are the big elements of the book to so many just to like such good effect um so i was really really pleased the um the singing is wonderful and you know i love a movie or a show with really good singing as evidenced by my deep love for the first hour of a star is born um it's great you know it's been a while since i read the book i I didn't revisit it so i didn't have like clear ideas in my head of what particular songs they were going to be doing or like big moments I was waiting for. That's probably beneficial because they do change a few things. Um, But I've been really happy with it so far. I have no quibbles and I just want, I was, I was excited. It's been a while since I just watched an adaptation and I was like, you know what? This is great. Uh, So I'm just here to say that. (laughs) Two, two, two thoughts. I haven't read the book in a long time and I don't know that Mm -hmm. maybe I'll eventually watch the show. I I bet Michelle and I would like to watch this together. We like yeah, I think this is a good vibe. One thing, um, one thing that an adaptation of a book has going for it, if it has the performing arts in it, it's a really mm-hmm. great feather in the cap of the adaptation, right? If it's dance, it's a theater, whatever, music especially, because books just don't do that as well. I mean, it sounds dumb to yeah. say, but if, you have, if you're trying to choose between a couple of adaptations, what one do you think is going to exceed or um, you know, at least overperform your bog standard adaptation – it's going to be something that's got music performed in it because it's just better. I'm sorry, it just is. It uh, is. It's just better and, in a visual medium, an audio medium. And it's hard. It's really hard to do music well, especially. And they've got actors here who mm-hmm. they're doing all their own singing. They are doing it very well. Um, it's really fun. So that's point one. Point two is you could do, if you had to break down books into two categories and two categories only, I think you could do worse than this following um, bifurcation. One is give the people what they want, and the other is <laughs> give them something else, right? And I kind of mm-hmm. think like literary fiction falls, the best kind of literary fiction falls into give them something else. And Agreed. I think commercial fiction and much genre fiction falls into give the people what they want, just kind of by definition. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. Sometimes I want what I want. Probably most, most of the time, most people want what they want. But I think it then explains a lot of phenomenon that maybe someone more snob, snobby's not, someone who leans more into willing to be surprised, wanting to be challenged, looking for that in my reading and artistic life values versus give the people what they want in the form of crawdads or the nightingale or it ends with us. Mm-hmm. I want some of that, but I don't want all of that. And Daisy Jones and the six, that what that critique, that melodrama critique, and it leans into that's a give the people what they want. That's, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that's that. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And there are, uh, I don't know, shades, various levels of skill with which you can give mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. what they want. I think Daisy Jones and the six, both the book and the show so far are on the high end of that. I would argue Crawdads is lower and that Colleen right. Hoover is further down even from that. Um, but there is real value there. This is entertainment. Books are entertainment yes. in many, many, if not most instances, probably most. TV is entertainment. You can learn stuff from it. You can be edified by it. All of those other things, all those reasons that we read so much literary fiction still hold true. But sometimes 
what you are looking for is to be entertained. And when you're picking up a book like Daisy Jones and the Six or you're turning on an adaptation like that, that's what you want is a good time to watch an yeah. interesting story that hooks you and is fun. And I, I was v- very entertained. I think this succeeds in doing what it's trying to do. And like, what really more is there for any piece mm-hmm. of art on any place of the highbrow, lowbrow scale? Then, yes, you are doing what you've set out to, to do. Yeah. And if that's not to break new ground, then fine. Judge it on those yeah. terms. And if it's what you, if that's not what you want out of that thing, don't watch it. It's it's kind of hard to review it, saying this doesn't break any new ground. I guess you're implying there that your review criteria across all forms is that it should break new ground. And I don't think that's necessarily true, even for someone yeah, like I don't me. Agree. I, I know there are people out mm-hmm. there that would only want to read things that break new ground. I also know people out there that only want what I want. You know, they don't really want to be challenged or provoked right, or like, ambiguity. And that's okay, too. You know, do what you is. want. But I think that is an interesting way to think of different cultural products. Is this fall into yeah. the give the people what they want category or not? And that can be very helpful um, in understanding. I think that's, so. that is really useful. Like the Criterion channel exists if you want yes. something different. And the Hallmark channel exists if and you so just want what the people yeah, want. Right, Hallmark, it's even better. Yeah, Hallmark. <laughs> Right. And there's a whole spectrum of stuff in between the two of those. And I I think much as in reading life and any of our entertainment intake, a good variety is, you know, it's good for the soul. It's good to be Mm -hmm. well-rounded. This is follow up to a Patreon episode. So I'm not exactly sure what to do with it. So I'm doing it here. I guess a couple, this gives me an excuse to plug. Last (laughs) episode, Rebecca and I did a deep dive on Rebecca Mackay's new book. Um, I have some questions for you. Mm. Enjoyed that conversation. Um, yeah. Right after this episode, we're recording a power ranking of the books of 1996, which will go up on Patreon next week. And oh boy, uh, <laughs> you DM'd me what I think it was, I was like, nine, the 96 books are wild. And I responded crazy. And that's mm-hmm. basically where it is a interesting topic. We picked this year because it's the year I graduated from high school. So we're kind of looking at, you know, notable moments. And I think it'll be interesting to talk about where we were, but what what a year and some and some unexpected <laughs> stuff going on there yes. so patreon plug patreon plug patreon plug i'm looking forward to that we don't <laughs> collaborate on that we basically say what's your 10 pick what's my 10 pick and then we go all up to number 1 pick and we've had we've had quite a bit of synchronicity i think this is the year rebecca yeah that i think this is going to be a wild one i feel one. like it's going to be a little it's going to be a little chaos energy coming into the, the <laughs> i think yeah this is a fiasco man episode coming up yeah. A Patreon, yeah, 1996, I had, I think I'd made a note that we were, like, usually we do these flashbacks and, like, this was 10 years ago, this was 20 years ago, but at some point we had established that 1996 was also, it's the year you graduated high school, and it's, like, the mm-hmm. the earliest we can go in my reading life. I was 14 yeah. then. Of, 14. Like, having been, yeah, of having been aware of books in a yeah. serious way, and it was kind of bonkers going back and being like, oh, I was aware of these things when they were happening. I mean, thanks mostly to Oprah and the paperback favorites table at Barnes and Noble. It, but it's it amazing is, that it smells like a it smells like a borders. Just looking at that list, it, I can get like does. a borders like sense memory. It's crazy. Yes. It is it's it's it is. And I've been just thinking about recording this and being very glad that when we get there and we're over in our Patreon mode, we can curse because I feel like that's gonna happen. Yeah. A lot just, of cursing. Mm-hmm. It's a wild one, and and maybe if I made the list on a different day, it would be completely different. Like, it's there's a well, lot of possibilities. We're now a lot stepping of stuff on the content, and, but we, there's a lot yeah. of competing vectors, right, of how we yes. do this that become interestingly um, uh, uh, tension filled. 
Uh, this is, I don't know if this is a segment, but I, there's a book I wanted to tell you about that exists. Okay, And great. it relates to some of our discussion around, I have some questions for you. And I think you'll get it as soon as I read the synopsis and so the other <laughs> Patreon people, but we can go, we're going to work backwards. Here's this, the book is called Speech Team. It comes hmm. out from Viking August 1st by an author named Tim Murphy, a new to me author. Here's this, here's the pitch. Late one morning, parked in a desk chair at his humdrum job, Tim Murphy finds himself reading the suicide note of a long-lost high school friend. Mentioned in the note as a root cause of Pete's despair, a disparaging comment made to him about his developmental disability by none other than their high school speech team coach. As more thorny memories surface from their 80s adolescence, Tip and his best friend, fellow speech team alum Nat, decide to reconnect with their other teammates, and they discover an unsettling thread. All were quietly wounded by Mr. Gold's deeply cutting remarks. The silver lining, Gary Gold is still alive, and a quick Google search tells the quartet that he has retired to Florida, and there's only one thing left for them to do, confront him. So you'll know why I picked this out after yes. our, our uh, put some questions. Uh, I have some questions for everyone. <laughs> this is, we were talking about something that that book is about, but not about, is confronting structures, right, about mm-hmm. abuse, uh, especially sexual abuse or other kinds of abuse and but it didn't do the confrontation. It didn't do the old people, the older versions reckoning with happening, and then going to that person and having a showdown. It's like this is the opposite of Dead Poet Society, right? <laughs> it's kind of what this is right here. Uh-huh. And we don't have stories like this. And I think you and I were talking about this, and it's so weird that I happened to come across as I was looking for some other book. It's wonderful. So that speech team by Tim Murphy sounds pretty pretty juicy. I have to say, good lord. <laughs> uh, so there you go. It's good stuff. Uh, let's see one other, well, let's do, hmm, I think I'm going to save this feedback for another time. We're, we're going to try to keep it tight a little bit today. I guess this is, um, the takes are coming and the takes are coming from higher and higher falutinness and you don't get much higher falutin than Noam Chomsky, (laughs) uh, on chat GPT. Uh, And you were, you said you were, hmm, encouraged, uh, I don't know. I had a warm response to Chomsky's um, yeah. take on chat, GPT, and AI. Do you want to walk us through that real quick? Sure. I mean, I, well, we can put the link to the whole thing we'll in the show, the show notes, notes for yeah, folks. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think it's worth a read. This is the closest to the take I've been wanting to read from someone who actually knows things <laughs> about how language evolves. Uh, Noam Chomsky, as you were saying, hard to beat in that respect. And it's a very, like, everybody be cool Chat GPT can do some things, AI can do some things, but it can't produce art. It can't think. It can't do the kinds of intellectual functions that humans develop as we acquire language that allow us to create. Um, so it resonated with a lot of what we were talking about last week. And I think my my own like very deep personal tendency with something like this to be like, it's technology, it's evolving. Let us not be so terrified of it. I'll, let's just hold off and be mindful and pay attention and like put some guardrails in place. But we don't we don't need to freak out. Um, and I felt very, I guess, validated. This is confirmation bias corner is yeah, what I'm doing right. here with Noam Chomsky. Uh, nice to be validated by someone with those kind of bona fides. Uh, but I think just an interesting take that I was glad to see to counter the popular take that I think is going to get a lot more clicks in the long run of like, oh my God, what's happening? Chad GPT, everybody be scared now. Um, and the truth yeah. is probably somewhere in the middle. You know, he's not anti 
alarmist. He, he allows for the possibility that like something could come and overtake the way that we do this, but it's not this tool, at least not yet and not in the foreseeable future. Um, so that's, no. I think that's just worth a read. I'm very pro everybody take a beat just in most situations. So thank you, Noam right. Chomsky for validating me, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't panic as the great Douglas yeah, Adams don't panic. Uh, admonishes us. <laughs> Um, speaking of confirmation bias, I don't know if this is a confirmation bias, but we've long suspected this. And it reminds me of a conversation we had multiple years ago on the show when Vita collapsed in on itself in one of oh, the right. great, you know, uh, was that during Me Too? Was that right during that? Was it before? I don't, oh, gosh. My memory of this is very foggy right now. I don't uh, remember. Vita, of course, was, is, question mark, organization that did annual surveys of the participation of women specifically in the review industry. Um, and it looked at major publications and did fair, initially fairly straightforward, how many, how many women, how many men, complicated that some degree with um, racial um, vectors, and then some nonconforming don't want to say, that's not how I think about mm-hmm. myself around gender. And the charts we started to see were getting better and better and not much was happening. And one of the things we talked about is this is a second order concern maybe. What about the books that are actually out there? Because it didn't really jive, and I think this is the nut of it, with our sense of how many more and more books were being written by women, at least the kind of books that we cover and sort of the big five main publishing um, houses do. Because like, there's a lot more books by women. There's a lot more. I wonder how. We didn't really know. It's such a thorny, huge mess. How would you even count? Blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what, Rebecca Sinski? Here we are five years later, and someone done counted for us. And I guess I'm not surprised by the overall result here, but maybe I am. So basically, this is um, a study done by an economist named um, Joel Waldvogel looking at the books published over the last 70 years using the available means because that's just what you have. And Mm -hmm. the top line here is by 2020, so this is a couple years old at this point, and I'm assuming it's even more so now. In 2020, for the first time in history, women were publishing more books than men. And not only that, book sales were growing. And not only that, the average book by a woman sold more than the average book by a man. I have to say, I'm not surprised by any of these findings. I'm not. I guess I'm glad to see that those are true. Mm -hmm. I guess you want... This is what we want, right? We've said this a million times. We want basic, or what we'd like is for everyone who wants to have a shot and get a fair shake. That's what we want. Mm -hmm. And one way of looking at that is do the kinds of people that get published and who get marketing dollars and whatever, more or less line up with the people that are quote unquote here, whatever the here you're managing is. And this suggests that not only is that the case, but it's gone a little bit the other way, and this is more towards, I think, frankly, that more women read books than men in the United States especially. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it. This looks kind of like an equilibrium. Um, I don't know. How, yeah, how lines this, before we get into a little bit more? What else to say? I agree with all of that. This feels like very long-coming acknowledgement by the industry and then the industry being rewarded for that acknowledgement that most books are bought by women and that when you give the people what they want, you sell more of those things. Because the note here is not just that you know, women were publishing about 20% or accounted for about 20% of published titles in the 70s. And that grew, as you were saying, to over 50% 
by 2020. They note here that it likely displaced some male authors, but the change, this wasn't zero sum. It wasn't that mm-hmm. some male authors were just replaced by female authors. The whole industry grew. And by 2021, female authored books were selling more copies on average than those written by men. So publishing by bringing more women into the books that get published has not just succeeded in better representation, but that representation is rewarded by the market in the shape of more book sales. And that's exactly what we talk about when we're talking in the abstract about how diversity is not just the right thing to do. It's good for business. (laughs) This is hard Mm -hmm. evidence of that. And it would be wonderful to see something similar to this, like another longitudinal study that could look at representation, say, of people of color and how the industry grows and how books by and about people of color or by and about LGBTQ folks or, you know, pick any underrepresented or marginalized group. As art becomes available that reflects and represents those populations, they want to spend money on those kinds of books and seeing those kinds of stories, but so do other people who want to be exposed mm-hmm. to them. That It's good for everybody. It's really wonderful to see some hard numbers here about that. Yeah, and just in terms of methodology corner, this this is a piece on QZ um, written by um, Cassie Werber, link in the show notes, a write-up, a summary of these conclusions. Um, how did it happen? Um, will determine female and male authorship by first name, which risked misclassifying some authors with names mm-hmm. that don't easily fall in the, any of their gender bracket. It seems to me for a huge data set, basically as well as you can do, right? There's going to be some mistakes either way, unless you're going to go individual by individual, which right. would be a much larger task. And probably you wouldn't have a study if that's was the strict scrutiny you'd require there. Your mileage may vary. I think that's okay. It's going to even out. If anything, I think the note here is a good one about how does it count Mm -hmm. authors like J.K. Rowling, right, for example, who is a female, obviously. And there's a lot of books. You may or may not know that J.K. Rowling sold some books in the um, (laughs) ever. So I would guess because of naming conventions that probably it actually maybe, if anything, undersamples women because they're doing initials, right? right? We've talked about this before. Um, Okay, it probably is not pixel perfect in terms of the representation of sales and authorship. But I think that's as reasonable as you could expect from one person doing a study, Rebecca. I mean, I don't even know what else yeah. you would do besides I asking, think that's asking, asking. Right. I think that's fair. And I was looking at that same note that even if this way of classifying the names did misclassify some, mm-hmm. the big one here... <laughs> in the last 30 years is J.K. Rowling. And if all of her book sales were misclassified and attributed to male authors, then the effect here of growth for female authors is even bigger than the study captures. And that's the direction you want the mistake to go in if a mistake exists. This is, I think, also a really good first start like someone will yeah. con- someone else will continue this or Wald Fogel will you know become more sophisticated or get access to better tools or more people will get involved mm-hmm. in doing research like this and then you can get into more granular finer and finer details about all of this stuff but I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good when we're just starting to get our heads around how to keep track yeah. of really important shifts like this so let's take it and be glad that someone did it I mean, the next most interesting question, I think, is about race, race and ethnicity. And I think you even have a harder problem of identification there. I mean, we have this on the yes. side ourselves, right? Um, that's much more difficult to know. Or 
when you have two groups, right, if you're trying to say men, a man or a woman, or male or female, and you're, you have to sort that way, that's a lot simpler than there's a range and there's mixes and hyphenates mm-hmm. and all the complexity that comes with, and we want all that complexity. That's all meaningful uh, metadata, for lack of a better term, but this is kind of the simplest question to ask with available yeah. data along these lines, unfortunately. Capturing all that complexity in a study where you are the one trying to do the classification rather than being able to ask people directly how they identify yeah. is nearly impossible. Um, and so yeah. it'll just watching how studies like this evolve will be part of the fun here yeah. too, I think. I think that's, I think that's a good point. Um, watching how something evolves. Um, this is not a headline I would have expected, but um, so Larry McMurtry, a famous book person who also had this giant store uh, called Booked Up. Mm-hmm. And when he died, it was one of the things that someone needed to do something with. And if you expected, if you would have told me that Chip Gaines was the one coming <laughs> in here with, I guess, all that Target book money, or, you know, I guess it's probably. Whatever TV it's show. It's that is Magnolia it, Network H- money. Oh, they've got the, yeah, they have a network there. <laughs> Came in and decided to buy these, buy the, booked up. Uh, Gaines grew up in New Mexico, but his parents and grandparents are from Archer City, where he spent summers cultivating appro- appreciation for the quote unquote ranching lifestyle, which, <laughs> sorry, I can't read because my eyes were in the back of my head. Let me just get them back in the front. Here, here we go. Um, a quick Google search. Shouts to um, Amanda O'Donnell for doing a quick Google search of the following phrase. Oh, I lost it. Chip Gaines reads Chip books. Chip Gaines reads books. Yeah. It's my new podcast. It's actually my new Substack. stack. Um, we'll serve you to remind you that while Gaines doesn't present as a biblify online, he and McMurtry have more than one common. They're also authors. So I don't, I, I try to do a little secondary look. Are we sure this is going to remain a bookstore? We're not just property oh. hunting here. Gosh, I hope not. I mean, uh, again, the Magnolia Network could maybe do some agiprop about how it's better to t- replace it with a mini Target or something. I don't know. Well, but I don't know. Maybe are we sure going this to... is he wants to own a giant bookstore? Are we sure? Maybe we they're sure? going <laughs> to fix it up and cover it in shiplap and live, laugh, love signs. I think that's the <sighs> most likely <laughs> scenario. Um, yeah. But maybe it was just buying a piece of hometown nostalgia to preserve for the hometown. Uh, there's a lot of ways this could go. I don't even remember how this came across my you know, dashboard. <laughs> like It's a piece in TexasMonthly.com. I think the last thing I read in Texas Monthly was a profile of Leon Bridges several months ago. I, yeah. I, I don't even know how this is a thing I became aware of. Uh, but I had this moment this week of like... Chip Gaines bought Larry McMurtry's bookstore and it happened a couple months ago and the people of Texas know about it, but no one else is talking about it. So here we are. <laughs> We're talking and, about and, it. And, if you and had, a, and a, oh, go ahead. I was saying, if you had given me a hundred guesses about who was going to buy Larry McMurtry's bookstore, I would never have arrived at Chip Gaines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, sure. In um, what can only be Pulitzer Prize worthy reportage, listen to this. <laughs> So apparently a former owner of the local newspaper saw Chip Gaines carrying boxes out of Booked Up and just asked him what was going on. (laughs) Incredible stuff. Love it. Uh, So so, uh, I guess we can hope for uh, a long and prosperous life of of Booked Up, but I'm sure it will be. I hope so. 
Well, is there is there a term for the Gainesian motif? I don't even know. Oh. It's not. Is, what is? What would you even call this? Gosh, I can't remember what their show, their first show was ex-urban called. Ex-Urban Ranch? They, it's like Ex-Urban Ranch or something like that. Yeah, this. something like that. I don't like even that. know what you would say. It's just shiplap everywhere. It's their fault I even know what shiplap is. And I'm not proud of that. I, I don't th- I don't think if you can put me in a clockwork orange style situation, I could identify what shiplap is. And you live with an architect. Yeah, let me just say, if that word or that aesthetic ever entered our house, there'd be answers that would be required. Someone would begin an investigation. One of us would. And since I don't know what oh, it is, you know well. who it's not. Uh, yes, yeah, it's... Uh... That's really something. You know, the store, it notes, has been closed since McMurtry died in March of 2021. And I guess the Gaineses, if they were going to knock it down and do something else, it's been a couple years. Maybe they would have done it by now. I'm, I don't know. I want to hold out hope. You get to be where they are with that media savviness and think you're going to buy a beloved old bookstore in Texas right. and knock it down to, they do, to replace it with the Gaines Cafe or something like that. I mean, they do... I just can't imagine they're going to do that. They do the, like, renovate and turn stuff into the Gaines Cafe thing, but they do it in such a way that it's like, look at us bringing life back to this part of yeah. town. Like, I, they have a whole... Like renovated building section of Waco, Texas, that Anne Helen Peterson wrote a fascinating piece about a couple of years ago. Like went and spent a week in Waco and went to lunch at I don't know if it's actually called the Magnolia Cafe, but like goes and hangs out there and looks at people wearing their I love Chip and Joanna t-shirts and like it is a whole like mini tourist industry. And so maybe they're trying to do that to bring something back to Archer County as well. Um I do think they are savvy enough to not knock down a beloved bookstore, especially as people yeah. who write books and make some money off yeah. of book people. Yeah, it doesn't. That would be an extreme own goal on the Gaines mm-hmm. enterprise to do something like this. Probably the price wasn't that expensive. It's a small town. You know, it's a huge space. There's a lot of books that come with it. It would be a real um, goodwill coup to turn it into an active bookstore. Yeah, and you could do it like a Powell situation. I mean, it's a smaller town, of course, but it becomes a destination. Right, mm-hmm. people would go to this thing. Well, yeah, like people uh, go to Waco to shop yeah. at the Joanna Gaines gift shop, so they would definitely go to a bookstore. So anyway, uh, we will see. That's a thing in the world. <laughs> what happens? I am looking forward to this. Um, I'm looking forward to this development. Yeah. Also, in headlines that I maybe should have been expecting, but was surprised by when I saw you drop it onto our podcast agenda. <laughs> ByteDance, the company that owns yeah. TikTok, is hiring an acquisition. I wondered editor. about this. Do you remember me wondering about this when we, mm-hmm. we were talking about them being mm-hmm. able to press the red button on a video and make something go viral? I said, what if they had a book to sell themselves? And lo and behold, they're, gonna, they're looking to buy manuscripts. They are. Can this work? Rebecca, can they do this? Well, their Will starting salary well, they're, is higher well, than all that. the other ones. Yeah, well... That's true. I, you know, uh, this is in a cynical way that I don't love, but I think is pretty possible. I do think it could work at least once. Uh, At least that's a great, the over under on this working is one and a half. (laughs) Right. They have, ByteDance has more data about what Mm -hmm. more people in the world pay attention to than anybody else. And that means that they could 
shop for manuscripts that specifically hit those themes. They could hire writers and pitch Mm -hmm. them ideas that hit those themes. And they can press the red button that juices videos about that book once it comes out into more people's algorithms. And And as we know from Colleen Hoover, the book doesn't have to be good. It just has to do those things. It has to give will, them what they want or what they don't to, even know they yes. want. It has to give them what they want. It has to make for like kind of histrionic videos that everybody can yep. get in on that thing. And it has like, to be a thing where people know if they make a video about it, they're going to get the mm-hmm. algorithm boost. Right. They're going to be the part of it. The algorithm will shine on their back door. If I were a betting woman and I had to bet on it today, I would bet they make one work. And make one work. And what what kind of threshold is that? I mean, is that number one for a, is it the best selling book of the year? Is it a top twenty book of the year? It's a great because question. I, those are meaningfully different things. Uh, it, not not to like be too fine a point about it. But like, I don't think they can make a Colleen Hoover. I'll put that out. No, there. like a whole flipping brand kind of a situation. Could they do a Crawdads type one title for multiple years and be mm. the best selling? book? I think that's entirely. No yeah. one's ever had these this in their arsenal before. No one's ever had. The data and the platform and the mechanism all mm-hmm. pointed at the same and thing. To my knowledge, I can't think of one. I cannot. Think I can't. Of one. No, this is it's unprecedented. And you're know, looking like the starting salary is fifty eight yeah. five to one hundred and thirty thousand nine hundred. And if you acquire one book that does this, you have like more than paid your salary for quite a while. So yeah. it's. I do think it's really possible. My. Big question about it is when TikTok starts marketing books that TikTok has published and the average TikTok user has some kind of understanding about Mm -hmm. the algorithm and how things get served to them. How does that how does it feel to be on the receiving end of that? Like, I would find that to be kind of insulting. Like you have just mined my data and tried to produce like the lowest common denominator thing but i guess there's a world where that is also just giving the people what they want like this is the i think this is a big question in media development right now like it's it's also happening with showtime where they're like recently news came out that they were like we're gonna double down on the things we know people like and so there are gonna be like 15 spinoffs of billions and hope you're ready for some more stories about dexter (laughs) And I both understand how they arrived at that based on viewership data of those shows and think it's a misunderstanding of how consumers function with, you know, response to just more and more and more and more of the same. They're like the Netflix stuff that's been basically Mm -hmm. created in a lab to respond to people to what the algorithm thinks people want. None of that has been really terribly successful maybe it doesn't have to be terribly successful it just has to be successful enough to justify continue doing it um right but it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting this next phase of how stuff gets developed based on all of this data and definitely nobody has more of it than ByteDance does i I guess it's not unrelated to our discussions of chat gpt where we think it could make a median kind of thing Mm -hmm. But median kind of things typically do not become phenomenons just by the nature of their medianness, right? Yeah. Um, the, the difference here is that I do wonder about the motivations for people to make videos is at least in part that they want to get views and they want to have engagement. 
So whether or not they care that they're being pandered to or marketed against their data or whatever, I wonder if people are going to care as long as they get a bunch of videos. Yeah. And, and I'm going to assume for the moment, let's assume for the moment that the book is does what it's supposed to do. What if the book's okay? What if it's pretty good mm-hmm. or it really scratches that itch? Are people really going to care? And will they know? How are they going to know? <laughs> will it be, you know, because what else TikTok can also do? They can also press the opposite of the red button on videos about how TikTok is pandering to people on this. <laughs> yeah, and they can name their imprint something that has nothing to do with TikTok. Yeah. And then will anybody even know that it's the thing TikTok right. produced? I think that's a that's a great point. It's I think this is just going to be fascinating and tricky. And you know, if they have some just moderate success. Yeah. The real questions then become like, is this just a thing now? Is this just part of how art gets made? I think TikTok has an edge in yeah. that, like what what existing publishers are trying to do is look at what's trending on TikTok right now, but they're acquiring books that are going to come out in 18 right. months to three years. And what's trending mm. on TikTok by the time those books come out is not going to be what was trending on TikTok when they acquired those books. So when you're always chasing after it, you can kind of you can never really reproduce it. Like we have not seen yeah. anyone successfully And how much that matter? I mean, you're right. But does it right. matter if they can press the big red button? We just don't know. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, and TikTok know. doesn't, it doesn't matter. TikTok can decide right. today what they want to have trend 18 months from That's now, right. acquire a book and make it happen. And and so from that, mm-hmm. now that I'm like really verbally processing this, <laughs> they can go acquire a manuscript that they think is excellent. And then they can push all the levers to try to sell a jillion copies of that book. And they've got more levers and more knowledge about how to push them. And they can do it in real time where book marketers like at Penguin Random House are going to be 18 months behind. They're chasing the thing already. By the time TikTok's first published book goes viral on TikTok, assuming it does, and publishing starts talking about how to replicate the popularity of that thing, TikTok will be planning the next trend. And there's just no way to compete with that. I think just accepting that that's where it's going to go. It would be really hard to compete with it. I mean, I think the... The things that are hard about publishing a book still become hard. They have to distribute this thing. They got to get in the Barnes yeah. and Noble where people can go get their frappuccinos and, and go do it. They've got to print it. They've got to distribute it. But that's hard. But it's not as hard as the getting people to buy the book, getting people to know about the book and buy about the book. My next mm-hmm. question will be: where Are we going to get an announcement about who takes this job? Are we going to see a, a high-profile acquisition Ooh. editor at Harper or Atria or Berkeley or Park? You know, commercial. Fiction imprints. Mm-hmm. Do people want this gig? I, I think you. I think someone out there would take a swing at it because the upside is almost incalculable. Because we don't know what we don't have a precedent for something like this. I mean, the pay is already better, and what yeah. you're going to learn, like if you're a person who's just interested in figuring stuff out and mm-hmm. how it goes, you're going to learn all kinds of things. And I mean, I hope we get to see announcements about who takes this job like you're right that getting it distributed is a challenge but for a company based in china where a lot of supply chain stuff exists like the u.s relies on chinese-based supply chains for a large portion of book printing and publishing they will have access in a way or it's at least very possible that ByteDance will have access in a way like that'll be that's a thing they've got to do but i don't think it's a hurdle it's just well, a thing but even I mean, even someone like Amazon has had trouble getting their print editions in bookstores for a variety of reasons. And most non-big 
publishers, what they do is they distribute through a different house. So like Tin House, I think, is just as an example. It's a Portland. It's an independent literary publisher. But they're distributed through Random House. So they're basically piggybacking on that. Is Random House inclined to give bite dance? Like, sure, we'll throw you in the warehouse <laughs> with us. I want, You know, I, I wonder about that, too. I don't think it's going to yeah. be as simple as that. I don't I don't think it's that simple, but I also don't think it's as complicated as the Amazon case because bookstores, bookstores don't want to take the Amazon yeah. titles. Right. The retailers right. because Amazon is a retail competitor of theirs and TikTok is not. I guess all you really need to do is get Baker and Taylor and Ingram to put them in the warehouse. And Baker right. and Taylor and Ingram yeah. don't care. Well, and Barnes and Noble has built a chunk of their business these last couple of years over you know what the teens are picking up when they come in at three yeah. PM and they want the Barnes last book that was no featured They're on gonna TikTok. They're yeah, gonna they're going to have to carry it. Whatever it is, and or if, them, or whatever this is. Yes, yeah, whoever these books are that, that TikTok publishes. And I bet James Daunt is over there having conversations Salivating. about it right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Maybe Barnes & Noble will be the exclusive retail partner, or the launch retail partner. Yeah. Or There's like there's a lot of stuff you could Something do here. like that. Yeah. I think that better be our show. We got into that mm-hmm. a little bit. Unless you wanted to shout out a front list thing. I've got a bunch to talk about. I don't think any of them are oh. short. Do you have a front list thing Let's you want to mention? See. I do. Well, very quickly, yeah. I read Enchantment. I finished it this week. I think okay. I concur with you. I felt like Aww, it was a... That's so nice of you. <laughs> it was a... To me, it felt like descriptive, and I think it's intended to be prescriptive of like, yeah. if you feel broken, here's how to go get fixed. And I, I hope that there are readers that that really does serve. I just felt like those part... The things that she's trying to like help you wake up in your soul, I got those woken mm. back up in like after I got vaccinated. <laughs> um, so, but lovely writing, some lovely moments. Yeah. Um, and then I read Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson over the weekend. Oh, did you? Really? Okay. Yes. Really fun, frothy, rich people problems novel. Not going to change your life, but if you liked The Nest by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney or like the Emma Straub vibe. Who blurbed it. I remember. Yeah. I remember that. And then that's yeah. a good blurb. It's really fun. Also the new Ballycore Jaswal, Now You See Us, about Filipino maids working in Singapore and solving a mystery. Finished it this morning. Mm -hmm. A really good time. (laughs) I guess I've got two that I'll shout out real quick. I I told you the story of buying the English Understand Woolet Pals and getting cool points Mm -hmm. in front of my kids. Did I tell you about the reading experience of this book? You You did not. I apologize. Mm -mm. Banger. Whoever wrote about this was completely right. It threw me for a loop. I read it in like one 45-minute scene. Um, uh, sitting. I will say no more about it. If you're at all interested in it, go pick it up. Uh, it is $19 in hardback. I, I don't know what to tell you. I guess I the only review I can get, it was worth. It was worth the 19 bucks, even without the cool points, even with the cool points deducted from the margin of opportunity cost of this transaction. It Excellent. was still worth it. I think, I, I think about it quite often. Um, I'd love to see it as a, it's not long enough. It'd be like a one act play or something. It was great. I loved it. I'm going to go check out the rest of these little these little weirdo things that are $19 for an hour, but it was a wonderful recommendation. It was a great reading experience. I'll say no more. I also read, speaking on the short side, Discalculia by, mm, I don't know how to that's say That's on my name, list. Emily Felix. Yeah, it's a memoir. It's a debut memoir by a poet. It's a super heavy and super, it's extremely well written and I enjoyed reading it, but it, what got me interested is what she's going to do next, because mm-hmm. it had a little bit of debut stuff in it. It's it's a lot. It's just a lot. It's a lot going on. There's a lot of life experience. There's a lot of really heavy stuff. It felt like an authentic and urgent and beautiful story of an extremely young person writing their first book. 
and I think that's all welcome. Um, mm-hmm. But as much as anything, I'm like, oh, I want to follow this person. Does that make sense? Like, I, I really want to see what the yeah. they, th- this one. They felt like they had been winding up to write this, and that's great. And I enjoyed it on its own terms. But the thing that my brain really wanted to do, I wonder what the mm. next one is. Love um, a so poet writing disc. fiction. Just, if anything, it's the opposite of that. Yeah, poets writing memories. Forget about it. Yes, yes. Um, so that's discalculated. And you could read it in a couple cool. of, or I listened to it in a couple hours. Um, oh, nice. So really good. Great. Cool. Good show. All right, that's our show. Yeah. Bookriot.com slash listen for show notes. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. And uh, stick, check out the Patreon uh, if you want to check that stuff out. Um, we're about to sharpen our friendly knives to power rank the books of 96. Um, and Rebecca, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.